come this morning to the fourth sermon in a series in the little letter of James that will take us through this summer, about 25 messages in total. And the title of this morning's message is The Double-Minded Man. Our text is James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging and, and asking the question, do you find it difficult to make decisions sometimes? I know I certainly do. Why is it that making decisions can be so difficult for us? As I thought about it, there are a number of reasons. For one, it's just impossible to know every possible ramification or effect of the choices that we make. There's always at least a few unknowns, and sometimes there's quite a few. The other thing I thought of is that making a decision usually sets in motion, like dominoes, a series of chain reactions that we can't control. And I don't like not being in control. Most people don't like that feeling of being out of control, and so making decisions is hard, and even young people, very young children, can relate to the challenge of hard choices. But as you get older, it gets harder before it gets easier, especially as you enter teenage years in your early 20s, your first swings at adult decision-making can seem overwhelming. And by necessity, there is a lot of trial and error. Because of this, Christians have been taught and know to ask God in situations where a difficult decision is presenting itself to you, you've learned to ask God for wisdom. But what if that's the wrong approach? What if asking God for wisdom when facing a difficult choice isn't what God wants you to do? What if God is less concerned about giving you the information you need to make this decision than he is about giving you the inspiration that you need. What if God's main concern for you is not that you're on the right path, but that your heart is in the right place? What if your concern should not be about God's plan for your future, but God's plan for your today? So that your prayer should not be, Lord, show me what I should do tomorrow, but give me today my daily bread. In sum, what if the goal of the Lord is that you would be single-mindedly devoted to God rather than someone with divided loyalties? What if God's main priority for you is to keep you from becoming a double-minded man? I believe that's the most important lesson you need to learn from this morning's passage of Scripture. And I say that because this Scripture is perhaps one of the most misused Scriptures in the Bible. Often turned to by people when they're seeking guidance from God about their future. Guidance which is not really offered here, at least not in the way that most of us 
look to James 1, 5 to 8. I want to show you that in this text, this passage in James, God's concern is not so much to help you make the right choice, but he wants to give you the right kind of heart and to prevent you thereby from becoming double-minded. The fact that I may be taking away a cherished verse that you use in prayer when facing hard choices may come as something of a shock to some of you. You might even feel cheated or robbed, but it's always better to read Scripture in its context in the way that God intends it. And I hope that this morning's sermon helps you in that way. So while it may be something of a new lesson for some of you, even if you've been in the Christian faith for some time, I'm sure you'll welcome being redirected in God's best plans for your life. Like his more famous older brother, Jesus, James, in offering wisdom in this passage, is not offering practical guidance for your plans or showing you which fork in the road you should take at a critical juncture in your life. Rather, he's offering you what you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, with all, and, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. But a double-minded man is not this kind of person. By definition, a double-minded man is not loving God with his or her whole heart. It's not someone whose loyalty to God is whole, but partial or divided. This person is not integrated, but his or her psyche, his or her emotions are shattered into a million little pieces, each one pointing in a different direction. Living for God, however, and loving God in a negative world involves a supernatural restoration or healing of all these internal cracks and divisions. All of these contradictions and different pointing arrows by God's grace get aligned and point in the same direction. This is healing which begins when you recognize your need and seek that wisdom which he offers, which is from above. So let's consider what it means to be a double-minded man this morning from our passage of Scripture in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If you're going to avoid becoming double-minded or you want to recover, perhaps you've already slipped into a double-minded frame. So if recovery is for you, then you'll need to know two things. Firstly, the failures of a double-minded man, and then secondly, the objections or misconceptions of a double-minded man. These will be my two points for this morning's message. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So far the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. The failures of a double-minded man. First, let's think about 
how a double-minded man fails or where he or she fails to grasp in three key areas. First of all, failure number one is a double-minded man fails to understand the nature of the world. The world as God made it is holy, right, and good. And while it was not complete and that God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, work to do, they, he gave them a mission to complete, there was a purpose that was as yet unfulfilled in the garden before sin entered the world. This incomplete world, though incomplete, was morally perfect and in that sense without flaw. But if you haven't noticed, this is not the world that we live in today. The world we live in has become burdened by sin, and as Scripture and as our confession teaches, this world is under his wrath and curse. Creation itself, Paul tells us, groans as a woman in childbirth and eagerly awaits the redemption of God's elect people. And so in order to avoid being a double-minded man, it's crucial that you see that our world is burdened by the weight of sin. Why is this important? If you don't see that the world that we live in is fractured by sin, then you're likely to assume that things are moving along in society and in your life, though not perfectly, fairly well okay. You're also likely to see, if you don't see the world as it really is, as broken by sin, that by your own efforts you can change what is yet lacking in your own life without a transcendent supernatural intrusion without God actually coming to you and giving you a power and capacity that you lack apart from him. You will be tempted to make this world your permanent home, therefore, or to accept what's broken about it, perhaps without hope of change, or that's just the way things are. This can lead to a, an apathy, a coldness, or an indifference to God and to the things of God, and it definitely sets the stage for becoming a double-minded man. The second failure of a double-minded man is not just that he fails to understand the nature of the world, but also he fails to accept God's solution for our fallen world, and that solution is simply Jesus. Jesus came into the world to redeem both the creation and fallen human beings created in the image of God. We see this in our text in that verse 4 from last, last week, James writes, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect to complete, lacking in nothing. See, that describes each of our conditions. We all lack something. We're lacking in much. And so James in verse 5, in connecting verse 4 and 5, says, And if you lack something, if you lack wisdom, ask it of God. What's in view then in this lack is recognizing that we are not yet mature creatures made in God's image. But there is one who is, and his name is Jesus. He was the one single-minded man who's ever walked on the face of the earth, wholly devoted to God in every single thing he did, everything he felt, and everything he said. So James 1.4, in speaking of the maturity and the fullness and the completion offered to humans by God, is referencing the salvation which comes at the end 
of life for all who believe in Christ. James, as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, presents the Lord Jesus as the one who has solved this issue or the problem of your divided loyalties. In James 2.1, he is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, which shows James believes that Jesus, as the glorious one, has not only died for our sins, but in glory he's risen from the dead, has ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God. In James 2.6, Jesus is the fair name or the beautiful name by which you were called. Called out of your former manner of life of double-mindedness, of divided loyalties, and called into a narrow path of serving God and God alone. Called into a life of service of God like James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1. And then as the risen king, Jesus is the one whose royal law James refers to in James 2.8. Royal law being the law of Jesus. Jesus is the king. He's given us the law of love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. And this is indeed wisdom from above, James 3.17 and 18. So, in short, if you know that the world is broken and under the curse of sin, but you don't address it through the solution of Jesus Christ, you are in danger of becoming a double-minded man. Third, not only does the double-minded man fail to understand the world as we live in is fallen and sinful, not only does he not accept the solution of God's provision through Jesus Christ, but third, the double-minded man fails to embrace his new identity. If you're stuck in a double-minded frame, or if you're in danger of slipping into having divided loyalties, One of your failures is, or will be, that you're not embracing who God has made you to be. This new identity is stated in, I believe, the thematic verse in the letter of James. The most important verse in this book is James 1.18. Here's what it says. Of his own will, that is, of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Here's what this means. If you really knew who you are, if you really knew the kind of person God has created you to be of his own will, bringing you forth, there's a reference to the new birth. He's made you to be a new person in Christ. And James says this is a kind of first fruits of the new world that he's making. A world that is no longer divided by sin, no longer shattered and fractioned into a million little pieces with parties and factions and divisions and wars internal to the human person and yes amongst people and in society there will be no more war the the prophet isaiah says in this new world swords will be beaten into plowshares and people and creatures formerly at odds like children and snakes will play together in this world what james says is who are you now Even now, in this fallen world, in this world broken by sin, you are a kind of first fruits of the new world that is coming. And so if you discover as one of God's new creatures that you lack something, if you lack the wisdom that you need to persevere and to be sustained in a particular challenge or difficulty that you're facing, ask God. 
the God of creation, the God of recreation. He will generously provide for you the strength and stamina you need to live out your identity as this new creature in Christ. There's a vivid warning in our passage which points to the double-minded man's outcome or fate or, or, or presents a picture before us of what it looks like when you're not living up to this identity. If you fail to embrace your new identity, you are compared to a wave of the sea in our passage. And we were talking as a family a couple of days ago about seasickness. I don't know if any of you struggle with seasickness. I don't. I can go on a boat. It could be going well, this way and that way, and I'm like, this is fun. I could be reading a book and, you know, juggling with one hand, and I won't even know the difference. But not so the rest of my family. I'll give you a tip. With seasickness medicine, make sure you take it a good hour or two before you get on the boat, and don't slap that sticker on there about five minutes before the boat takes off. Oh yes, people who struggle with seasickness may be getting seasick just hearing me talk about seasickness. But as you look at a wave of the sea, it goes up and it goes this way and the, and the white cap foams and then the wave goes up and this way and then the white cap foams and then it moves this way and its movements and motions are seemingly completely random. It's quite a vivid description in our, in our passage. A wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed by storms. I think James is referring to the unpredictable character of a wave or of a packet of water when the weather around it and the temperatures around this packet of water are such that it is heaved up and thrown down and tossed to the side. It's the motions and movements of this portion of water seemingly are without anchor, no pun intended, without foundation. Such a man, James explains, rather than embracing the solid identity of, of being driven like a, like a deep anchor, a deep concrete foundation into the soil of God's new world, and immovable in light of all that's changing in this life. In contrast to that, the double-minded man is rootless, homeless, and is at odds even with himself or herself. Rather than living out the new life which God has implanted in us, pointing others to God furthermore in the midst of a confusing and changing world, a double-minded man is helpful to none. Verse 8, unstable in all his ways. Now that we see the failures of a double-minded man, I want to consider the objections or maybe even misconceptions would be a better word here of a double-minded man. If you're double-minded, why won't you like the counsel and help that James is offering here? What objections would you have to James's guidance? James is commanding you to ask God for wisdom. Why might you struggle with this? I see three objections or misconceptions that you need to be aware of if you're going to avoid from becoming this person. Objection number one is, all I need is an answer. A double-minded man insists, God, all I want is an answer to my question. 
I heard one person put it this way, if God's there, why couldn't he just send me an email? Maybe you felt that sort of frustration. You know the kinds of questions we have. Who should I date? What should I major in? Where should I live? Should I take that job? Put another way, if God loves me, he will answer my question. On the contrary, as I have already mentioned in my opening remarks, the double-minded man doesn't realize that what concerns God is not your lack of information about these decisions. It's your character. It's your lack of inspiration. I don't have time to go into this illustration, but one of my favorite stories of the Bible, just because it's so strange and curious, and I want to encourage you to look it up later today if you can take a few minutes. It's the famous story of King Saul and the Witch of Endor. Sounds like it's a chapter out of J.K. Rowling's novels. Well, briefly, I'm using restraint because I love the story. I'd love to tell the whole story to you, but just very briefly. Saul's mentor and guide, the prophet Samuel, has died, and Saul faces a very difficult situation and doesn't know what to do. He knows that it is strictly forbidden in God's word to summon the dead and to try to communicate with those who have passed beyond the grave. So he disguises himself and finds out there is a, a medium or a spiritualist in Israel. They're not supposed to be there, but there is a couple of them. So he goes in disguise to the witch of Endor and says, summon up for me Samuel so I can get some guidance. But the problem is, Saul has all the guidance he needs. He doesn't need any more information from Samuel, and that's basically what Samuel tells him. When this summoning by the witch is successful, Samuel basically says, Saul, what are you doing? Leave me alone. You know what to do. You just don't want to do it. What is proposed in our text is that you ask God for wisdom, which is Sophia in Greek, a beautiful girl's name. And God says, this will be given to you without, without finding fault, is how some of our translations put it. You can say without guilt, without retribution. This isn't a quid pro quo thing where if God gives you wisdom, you better give him something. God is generous. And he's undiscriminating anybody who asks him for this heavenly character will be given to him jesus is probably being echoed here when he taught that the father gives good gifts to his children who ask in luke chapter 11. apparently what is lacked has something to do with lacking wisdom well james who loves the old testament is constantly referring to it and alluding to it, and what does the Old Testament say about wisdom? Is Old Testament wisdom data or direction? No. I mean, we eventually get to that point, but the first thing the Old Testament says about wisdom is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Apparently, what we lack when we lack wisdom is something to do with fearing God. 
And what will be given to us when we ask for wisdom will at least begin with the fear of God. Not fear in terms of quavering or trembling like someone afraid of being smacked. But that beautiful combination of reverence and love, of respect and dependence. Fearing God's means you are in awe of God and you adore God, who he is and how he's worked in the world and how he is working in your lives. And that's the beginning of wisdom that you need when you face trials of many kinds. So the double-minded man will say, all I need is an answer. Just answer my question, Lord. The integrated, whole, and mature Christian will say, inspiration is what I need, not information. I have all the information I need. What I don't have, I can figure out, but what I can't do without is the blessing, favor, and love of God. A second objection or misconception is this. God doesn't care. The first one claims God is giving the wrong things, which you really need as information. The second objection or misconception is more direct attack on God. God, you don't care. Since you didn't send me that email, clearly you don't love me. You didn't answer my question. You didn't give me that job. I I did my research. You clearly don't know. And you clearly don't care. In response to this, James says, God gives generously. Furthermore, when he gives gifts, he doesn't give with an agenda. As I just alluded to, he gives unconditionally. He's a loving father who gives good gifts to his children. But being double-minded means that since your loyalties are divided, you're inclined to try and keep some things in your life that God wants you to get rid of. And as a consequence, you will begin inevitably to doubt the character of God and think that he doesn't care. Which leads me to the third and final misconception Doubt means uncertainty. I think a lot of double-minded persons, and perhaps you, have a misunderstanding about what doubt actually is. The, The scripture warns us here that you should believe and not doubt. But doubt doesn't mean uncertainty. I mean, Jesus was uncertain. Father, will you take this cup from me or not? I just don't know. He was also uncertain as to the day or the hour in which God would come and bring the world to its final climactic judgment. He says only the Father knows this, not even the Son. Now he's speaking as to his human nature. But the point is really clear that uncertainty itself is a human, not a sinful quality. It's embedded in the fabric of being finite, meaning you're a box. There are edges to your reality. You don't know what's in my mind, and I don't know what's in yours. God, however, is infinite. There's no doubt or uncertainty in God. But uncertainty is characteristic of what it means to be a creature. So what is doubt? Doubt here and in many other places in the Bible refers rather to the notion of judgment. Doubt might be better understood to say, but when you ask, you must believe and not judge God. That's what it means. This is just the old, old story. 
did God really say? Is God really good? With the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just to remind you, the issue wasn't that God wanted to withhold information from Adam and Eve, say, the knowledge of good and evil, but it's more like knowledge dash of dash good dash and dash evil. It's one idea. It's the power to judge right and wrong. This is the doubt that's being warned against in our passage. He, he must believe and not doubt. He must not take the role of the throne. He must not take the scepter from the king and say, now I've got it. I'm in charge. This is right and this is wrong. I define for myself what's right and wrong. He must believe and not judge God's actions, God's will. Otherwise, you're just rehashing the original sin. The man of integrity, the whole human, the mature Christian follower, the true servant of Jesus, we will struggle with this kind of doubt. Nevertheless, in the end, we will recognize that not getting what we ask from God doesn't mean God doesn't care or God is dead. It might mean that God knows what you need better than you do. And your role then is to accept and not judge, to believe and not doubt. I began my sermon this morning speaking of how hard it is to make decisions sometimes. I did this because so often when Christians need wisdom, when they feel that they're lacking information, they appeal to this passage of Scripture. In fact, with a good nature and a good heart, you may have even given this to someone who is lacking information that they need, maybe trying to choose a college or a graduate program. And you tell that brother or sister, if you lack wisdom, just ask God. And he gives generously to all without finding fault. The thinking goes like this. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. The Bible says if I lack wisdom, I should ask and he'll give me the wisdom that I need so that I know what to do in this situation. But I hope you can see that there are some serious flaws with this reasoning. As I've tried to show you, the wisdom that is offered in this text isn't really information, but inspiration. God is not promising to tell you what to do, but he promises to provide the heavenly character that you need so that whatever you do, you will do it to the glory of God. Second, the reason that character is being offered here is because the circumstances in which you lack wisdom is that you're in the midst of a trial. Count it all joy, the text says in verse 2, whenever you face various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you lack something, you see, James is continuing the thought. You're discovering in your life that your faith is currently being tested in some way, shape, or form. You're learning that you fall far short of the maturity that God designs and intends you to have. God has a plan for your life, and that plan includes your experiencing full, final salvation perfect and glorious in every way, but you're not there yet, and the current trial is underscoring the reality that I am still in process with God. What's weirdly absent from James's instruction is any hint that he will show you what to do. 
I say weird because our American Western version of Christianity tends to think that if I have a need, well, what else is God there for to do but to give me my needs? Meet my needs. Thank you, Jesus. We assume as Western people that what we care about is exactly what God cares about. And what God cares about is definitely what we care about. Apparently what James wants to say with this morning's passage is not that God will give you the guidance you need for a decision that you're facing, but God will keep you on the path of spiritual maturity, a path which I dare say may take you off of his path from time to time. As you experience trials and struggle with doubt, and immaturity, and sin. James writes, you see, to Christians like us, living in a world that is generally hostile to faith. The values and norms, the standards which surrounded James's congregations, and certainly which surrounds us, constantly tempt us to leave the path and to think wrong things about God ourselves in the world. They were in that environment tempted to hedge their Christian bets. And so James is urging the churches who read his letter and you and me today to seek a better way, the way of heavenly wisdom in a dark and dying world. James, the servant of God, urges you to follow his servant example by living a life of undivided loyalty. And if you discover you're not doing that, he gives you a very simple command. Ask God for wisdom. As I conclude then, how can we apply this morning's message? What should you do, especially if you really do feel you need more information about your problem or situation? Here are three things. One, is there anything in your current circumstances that breaks the commandments of God? I'm just talking about the Ten Commandments here. God gave us a short list, ten, and they're not suggestions. As you think about the choice that you're making, do one of the two options bring you in violation of any one of the ten, the ten words? You could frame it this way. Do one of these two choices that I'm struggling with, that I'm grappling with, that I'm wrestling with, cause me to omit some duty required in the ten? Because for everything negative, do not murder, there's a duty implied, preserve life. For everything positive, honor your father and mother, honor the Sabbath, there's a negative implied, do not desecrate these sacred things. That's the basic framework for decision-making that God gives us, and I'm sorry to say, but if both choices equally keep you from breaking the commandments of God and neither one causes you to omit the commandments of God, then choose whatever one you want. And may God be praised. I know this is a real letdown for some of you, but as Augustine said, paraphrasing the same idea, love God and do as you please. I'll repeat that. 
Love God and do as you please. Second application this morning is rededicate yourself and your life to living for God, to loving God. This has an impact, according to the Bible, on your desires. Some of my favorite passages on this are Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and Psalm 37, verse 4. You can also reference Psalm 73, verses 22 to the end as well. Here's Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a strange reciprocal spiritual transformation that takes place. As we dedicate ourselves to the will of God in our lives, to loving God and to making much of God and the things of God in our choices and in our values and in our vision for ourselves, there's a, there's a reciprocal transformation that takes place where our desire and our vision for ourselves begins to adjust itself or conform itself more to what God has in mind for us in the first place. You see, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Proverbs 3 is similar. Trust in the Lord, lean not in your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That verse was inscribed in my Bible as a non-Christian teen who attended church. I was 16 years old and I'd never read the Bible before. And our neighbor, Margaret Asbury, gave me a copy of the NIV Bible. It was red. And in there she wrote in her beautiful handwriting, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's remained very imperfectly my life's verse ever since. With this basic orientation then, the details of our lives or our future, when it comes to planning, you know, the nitty-gritty, down-to-earth, the checklists, the choices, Solomon's wisdom is sound. Acknowledging him in all your ways, trusting him will direct you in all the things that you need to know. As I've said a couple of times this morning already, God seems in our passage more concerned that you're living a godly life than you're making the exact right decision. You are not omniscient. You do not need to know the future. He has not given you the future. That's why in the Christian's prayer, one of the six petitions is, give us this day our daily bread. The third application is this. Consider this sample prayer for wisdom. This is a, one form of a prayer that asks God, asking God for wisdom could take, and it's my own wording. God, I'm suffering in a certain situation, and I'm struggling to keep my focus on you. My faith feels very weak, I fear my problem is that I lack the information I need, but if I'm honest, that's not true. I know you've given me everything I need in the scriptures and in my friends group and in my family and my church for life and godliness. I think my problem is rather one of divided loyalties. Lord, give me wisdom in this matter so I'm not overwhelmed by all this hardship. Provide what I need so that this season of suffering doesn't drown my faith, but rather refines and strengthens it to your glory and honor. I know that your will may not be to take away the trial at this time, but it may be to purify me in the midst of the trial. Lord, 
I need wisdom. Do your good work, for I know you give good gifts. Amen. Finally, and this really could be a whole sermon, but the motto of our church is helping people thrive in Christ. That's what we stand for as a congregation. That's our mission statement. It's awesome just thinking about it, helping one another thrive in Christ. What does this mean? I think one thing that it means is that we help one another to be wholeheartedly devoted to God, not divided with our various struggles, and I know each of you have them. But helping one another doesn't mean we're impatient with one another. It doesn't mean we judge each other. There's a deep spiritual embrace of one another and our imperfections as we help each other thrive in Christ. We're all in a different point of the journey. And we all have doubts. Jesus and James's younger brother, Jude, also has an entry in the New Testament canon, the little book of Jude. It's only 25 verses. It's not even long enough to have a chapter. So when I say Jude 22, I don't mean Jude chapter 22. I mean Jude verse 22. And Jude 22 says, beautiful statement about this morning's message. It encourages the community that was reading Jude's letter. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. It's a hard thing to experience divided loyalties. I know you know what it's like. Some of you have recently had success in this area. Others of you are struggling to keep your head above water. You're like that wave of the sea. Can we help each other? Can we encourage each other? Can we experience the grace and mercy of God together? Can we carry one another's burdens? If we do so, let us do so with compassion, care, and mercy as we live for God in a broken and divided world. Let us pray. Father, we bow before you now as people with divided hearts who sadly resemble more the wave of the sea described in this passage than the, the man who built his house on the solid foundation of Christ. And we have our excuses. It's easy to see why our loyalties are so divided when you look at society. It seems to thrive on criticism and division and backbiting, slander, gossip. We wish it weren't true in the church of Jesus Christ, but it is true. Misunderstandings and miscommunication, at the very least, not to mention outright rebellion and sin, leaders falling from their high position, thinking that they have a high position. Even our own families, Lord, are divided. Some of us have struggled or are struggling with the dissolution of marriage or breakup of a precious relationship and in our own hearts Lord is the hardest division to face of all 
We're divided against ourselves. And for this, we need wisdom. We need that heavenly healing, which allows us to enter into our full, integrated personality, the one which is the new child in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be the people of your possession, the first fruits of the new world that's coming, not to be divided. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.